Welcome, friends, people for peace, pods of consciousness, planetary citizens, wherever you happen to be today, listening to Glocal News in Social Artistry. I'm your host, Dick Dalton, and each week we have the pleasure of talking to someone who is building a more humane world from the inside out which has uh, various applications. <laughs> and today, my guest is a gentleman that uh, I've seen around so much, but we never have gotten together, uh, Dr. Larry Brown, Reverend Larry Brown. Good morning, Larry. Good morning. Yes, uh, I guess you hail from Columbia? Not originally. Spent the first uh, 21 years of my life in Nebraska. Ah. Uh, as, as I sometimes say, I was in exile in Indiana for about five years. <laughs> and then uh, came to Missouri in 1975, so been in mid-Missouri since 1975, although family heritage from Missouri, grandparents both from uh, northwest Missouri and from the Ozarks, and I've uh, had several generations in the Ozarks and been back to kind of claim some of my heritage. Cool. Uh, I wonder if the Ozarks is where you get the uh, <laughs> reputation for being a storyteller. Well, I have to say, it was my grandfather, Hopkins, probably, who had the influence on my younger days, and he was from Northwest Missouri. My family heritage in Ozarks actually didn't talk much. <laughs> I had to do some discovering about that heritage. Interesting. Well, you have been around Columbia in terms of teaching. You, I don't know how many years you taught at Mizzou. Uh, uh, 25 years. That was including the uh, part-time as I was uh, about nine years, I was half time at MU and half time at Stevens, oh, yeah. and then went full time at MU. But altogether, twenty five years, and then for the last uh, well, I guess six or more years, have been teaching for MU Extension's Osher program too. So, in some right. sense, I haven't left MU. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My dad, uh, Warren Dalton, taught a number of history classes at. Oh yes. You have listed that you uh, taught human geography. Correct. I don't know what that is. Well, it's everything that human beings do on and with the surface of the earth. Oh. <laughs> we, we sometimes talk about geography in, well, we talk about physical geography, which has to do with, with climate and land forming and, and oceanography and, and those things. And then we talk about the things that human beings do in interaction with that. We sometimes use the phrase human environmental interaction. Ooh. Oh, I, I taught the introduction to world regional geography for 17 years. That was the big mass intro course at MU. And in regional geography, we teach physical geography as well as human systems. Uh, we focus on politics, economics, uh, agriculture, urban systems. I taught for a number of years the geography of the world's religions, ah. which includes that geography of language, uh, environmental geography. Those are the, the subsets. Sometimes it's called social geography. Uh, sometimes it's been called cultural geography, but the broader term is human geography. Mm -hmm. uh, for a high school, we have advanced advanced placement human geography. Wow. I, I graded those for a number of years on the national level. Uh, so again, I would teach sometimes urban geography, sometimes uh, economic geography, but I taught the introduction to human geography for years, uh -huh. as well as geography of Missouri and world political geography too for a number of years. 
So could you give us an example of a snippet of a human geography class? Taste well, if, if we were in the introduction to human geography class, you would actually have about a week on all of those sort of subsets that I just named. Oh, another one I didn't mention was like ethnic geography, geography of race and ethnicity. That would be a, that's a thing. So we would, of course, begin with that concept of human environmental interaction. So what are the forces naturally on the planet or more than the planet, the, the cosmos that right. affect uh, human life? And then what are the things that human culture does to shape and change the natural environment? We're constantly doing it. So we spend some time getting acquainted with that. If you go back uh, in the earlier in the 20th century, there was a lot of what was called environmental determinism, uh, that the, the natural environment was the greatest factor in shaping how human beings built their culture, their religion, their, their social structure. Then by the 1950s, there was a lot of uh, revision going on. So no, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, <laughs> the environment isn't the only cause. Look what human beings do and have done always to change the shape We've changed the wildlife, we've changed the, the plants, we've moved the earth. We, now, today, when we talk about global climate change, you say, here's what human beings have done. Now, granted, you live on a side of a volcano, it's going to be more potent than you. What we do with our urban systems of transportation and economies is to totally change the environment. There's now basically no place on the land surface of the earth that human beings haven't directly changed and altered. Uh, over time. And this is not a, not just a modern phenomenon. All human beings at some point have altered uh, the natural landscape. So then we start looking at, okay, particularly, what does that mean in terms of political arrangements? What does that mean in religious perspectives and values? What does that mean in the ways that we've identified subsets of human beings by ethnicity and language? What does that mean in terms of what food sources we have used, utilized, what natural resources we've harvested, what resources we've developed. And so you can get into the economic geography from the very basics on up to modern economic and political decisions that are made regularly. Does ethics come into play in good or bad as to the you know evaluations of that? Certainly. And, and we do look at value systems. Now, in particular, when I taught for years, the geography of the world's religions, now we were looking at very complex uh, moral structures uh, and behaviors as people created their views of, of what the universe and, and the planet and what life on the planet is about. But ethical decisions, even teaching world political geography, one of the components of that course was the beginnings of international law. And I kind of trace that through uh, to the present. What's the concept of the modern territorial state and how does it create its value structures that get expressed politically and economically? And so you're looking at ethics, you are looking at social values and particularly when we're looking at international conflict, you know, what is it that leads people into that? How is conflict uh, dealt with? And, and, and looking at international law, then looking at peacemaking uh, efforts that have occurred uh, uh, pre, post, uh, and during uh, times of conflict. Uh, and uh, the, well, the structure of the United Nations, for example, or the structure of the EU. Uh, now my one particular research area that I specialized on for a number of years was 
white nationalism, um, began talking about that initially as quote unquote hate groups, but expanded that. And I did extensive research in the Ozarks looking at the presence of, of white nationalist groups. And, and again, you're looking now at moral judgment. Uh, you're making decisions about the value of certain people or not. Mm -hmm. Are you looking at the value of certain kind of political behavior or not? And what we've experienced, of course, in, uh, in recent uh, days right. uh, is expressions of particular value systems that may be in direct conflict with the national value systems. So, mm -hmm. yeah, we certainly look at, at that. I think I was originally attracted to geography uh, because it seemed to match my previous interests and profession. Uh, I did have an undergraduate degree in sociology and religious studies, then got a master's of divinity and uh, uh, was, I've been a pastor, still an active pastor and have been for 50 years or so. But I found in geography, particularly human geography, a place in which religious values, religious institutions, uh, religious perspectives can be looked at uh, and, and thought about. And I'm certainly one who who rationally and uh, emotionally like to see how the world is, uh, is structured. And so my religious perspective certainly found a home within uh, cultural geography too. Interesting. Did you find that your personal perspective in your religion shifted? Oh, I would say so. I think particularly when I was uh, engaged in studying and preparing and teaching geography of the world's religions, that helped me again put some of my own uh, historical background in a much broader perspective. Mm -hmm. And of, of course, with your father engaged in history and so on, I've had uh, lots of opportunity to work with people in the history department, anthropology department, sociology department, peace studies department. And all of those have helped again say, now how does my religious views, my religious experience, my commitment to particular religious institutions fit and match and complement or, or find themselves in conflict with others. Yeah, when I was at uh, Southern Methodist, I took a, a course in the history of Christianity mm -hmm. and it pretty well drove me away from Christianity. It was so awful. <laughs> well, <there. laughs> Every, every cultural group, every religious uh, uh, institution that human beings have put together has certainly had its dangerous <laughs> and awful and destructive sides to it. I, I found just a, a few years ago, I taught for the Osher, MU Extension Osher program, of uh, the uh, historical context for the Christian story of the Gospels. And uh, I sort of subtitled it, The Geography of Jesus. Whoa. And of course... What I found myself doing was spending as much or more time studying the Roman Empire, because it was out of that political, economic, and cultural context that the Christian movement as a resistance movement, an alternative empire, emerged. And so putting religion in its historic, physical geography location, uh, the economic and, and political and cultural interactions that are occurring at the time, and then over time, and so when I like teach the geography of the world's religions, we look at, well, how has that religious uh, entity evolved and shifted over time? Mm -hmm. What influences uh, are there? Mm -hmm. um, kind of case in point, I just recently finished reading the book, uh, This Land is Their Land. 
and it was the history of the Puritan and the Wampanoag people's interaction in uh, basically the, uh, the 17, 1600s and 17th century. And, and again, you know, our, a religious view of the Puritans, you know, is like this, <laughs> but now put it in the framework of the other cultures that were present and just as viable politically, economically, and then put that in the context of the geopolitics of, of England and France and, and, and the Netherlands. And when you start looking at that, the story then of the Puritan religious experience is, is very, very different. And then again, a very narrow narrative that might be told if you stood only within that religious perspective. Right. Do you trace the white uh, nationalist back all the way to those days? Oh, well, certainly. Um, now, there's so many branches of white nationalism. It's a, mm -hmm. it's a pretty broad spectrum, you know, all the way from sort of traditional uh, KKK, mm -hmm. which, you know, an, an American experience, and the neo-Nazis. Uh, okay. And then you look at various and sundry uh, patriotic movements or common law movements. Mm -hmm. And today you find, again, a number of those groups are really more politically engaged. Sometimes the terms, uh, uh, the alt-right, the alternative right-wing right or far-right is used. But I studied in particular a subset called uh, identity, sometimes called Christian identity, sometimes Israel identity. Now these folks have an operating philosophy that says, this is a religious perspective now, that the people of the Hebrew text, uh, what Christians would call the Old Testament, were white people. And they have their various ways of interpreting sacred texts to explain that. And that indeed, North America was given to them by God uh, through prophets to establish again as a new homeland for God's white people. And so they then find the colonial era to be particularly informative because you, you know, look at the preachers of the, the colonial period and they were talking about, you know, the United States of America. Well, originally the colonies were uh, the new Israel. Uh, oh, yeah. were, uh, uh, so we are the Israelites, not metaphorically, but literally, <laughs> and they would say genetically. Uh, so there are roots of that, of course, that are there. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then a very powerful uh, identification with American Protestant uh, evangelical Christianity and extreme white wing positions. Now, not to say, again, not all, but you find some linkages there with some evangelical Protestant Christians and some right wing political extremism. And they found a, a strange sort of compatibility. And they depend then on a pretty narrow narrative of who the United States is, um, much more emphasis on freedom and liberty than on, say, equality, sort of justice structured in a, in a more restricted manner. So the religious and the political narratives, you know, kind of, you know, mixed together. And it's not that far removed from what one might say has been the mainstream American narrative. Mm. You know, you will find folks who say, well, this was established as a Christian country. Well, that's not technically, literally true, but that narrative persists, or at least that God uh, chose us. Well, look at the, the 
history of manifest destiny. You know, what was that saying? Oh yeah, God gave Euro-Americans the right to just you know, take the continent mm -hmm. uh, um, despite the, the 500 other uh, nations that might have been present and claiming an earlier heritage. And yeah, so again, current expressions of white nationalism will dip into these historic perspective to say, oh yeah, this is the story, the, the most important story. Have you uh, dipped into uh, liberation theology uh, on the black perspective? Liberation theology from a variety of perspectives. I okay. do recall in the, uh, I think maybe 1970 or so, uh, I did take a course in graduate seminary on liberation theology. Now mm -hmm. then we were primarily looking at Latin American theologians, right. uh, Gustavo Gutierrez and, and actually Pablo Freire and some of the uh, pedagogy of the oppressed, some of that stuff. But then you also began to see at that same time, black liberation theology being expressed now, liberation theology has, has uh, uh, taken root in a number of places in the world. It is a global perspective. And my particular experience was a bit more focused on Latin America and Central America, even in more particularity. And I've heard to speak and met with and even been a part of some base communities in, uh, in, in Nicaragua and uh, in Dominican Republic and, and other places. But the liberation theology that gets expressed in ethnicities within the United States of America, too, has been very important. The, the, it's sort of the, the religious side of the Black Power movements that go back to the, the 1950s and earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, you see even, well, here in Missouri, uh, at the uh, beginning of the, the 20th century, the religious leadership that was present there in, in trying to get uh, labor rights for former sharecroppers. Well, then go back into the, into the 19th century as well and say, oh, look how many religious leaders were interpreting Christianity in such a way that it meant the freeing of slaves. Oh, the abolition movement. Oh, and so liberation theology, even though that phrase might have come out of Latin America with some post-Holocaust uh, theologians as well, uh, it, it, is, it is found fertile soil among liberation movements of other kind that had connections to religious perspectives and in particular uh, Christian perspectives. Have you and, and Suzanne Burgoyne had some conversations about that at Mizzou? Um, we have we have not particularly, you know, we've kind of, it's been, oh yeah, we've been similar places and different times, but uh, but not uh, not in a, in a genuine academic sense, no. Yeah. Well, she was my very first guest on uh, oh, the radio oh, show about three years ago. Oh, oh yes, yes. And uh, we talked about her interest in uh, liberation theology, and there was actually the theater of there's a phrase, and I've already lost it. Yeah, the uh, well, I know what you mean. I think that comes out of some of Paulo Freire's work originally. Yeah, right. Back pedagogy of the oppressed and yeah. right when reverend wright was on the scene with uh obama's uh, campaign uh, <laughs> that was a real i think shock to the majority of at least uh, white churchgoers that there was this other way of looking at christianity well you uh, this is a, a little bit of a historic tidbit but there was a bible uh, produced for for enslaved peoples 
uh, back during the, the period of, of American slavery. And uh, because the African enslaved African-Americans, of course, had access to, to scriptures and even maybe not in terms of a written uh, literary sense, but uh, oral sense. And so a Bible was produced and uh, that Bible went through and edited out all of the places in both Hebrew and Christian texts that might refer to liberation, freedom, uh, equality, and which, you know, takes out, you know, about 90% of, of the sacred scriptures uh, because you don't want the story of the Exodus going on. You don't want the prophetic critique of the injustices of the kingdoms and the kings. Uh, you don't want the inclusiveness eventually that, uh, that the, the, the way the Christian movement takes hold, you know, neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female. You don't want those messages to get implanted among enslaved peoples. Well, what uh, liberation theology did in Latin America was indeed gave the people back <laughs> their text. Here were people for the most part who had never heard the scriptures in their own language. They were hearing in Roman Catholic tradition only in Latin, not Spanish, and let alone not read it. Well, what liberation theology did was taught them to read, and what did they learn to read was the texts. So you got folks like the, the Cardinal brothers in Nicaragua uh, helping folks read, and when they read the scriptures, particularly the gospels, they go, huh, who, oh, whose side is Jesus on? Apparently, he's not on the side of the rich, wealthy, and powerful, but he seems to be on the side of the, of the least of these, the oppressed, and so on. And so, uh, you know, it was sort of automatic uh, that you would say, oh, well, there's texts that support that. Mm -hmm. Well, today, I, I just uh, finished reading a book recently called Who Stole My Bible? And uh, this was a, a great look at now. What are the traditions uh, going all the way back to creation stories uh, in, the, in the Hebrew text, creation is not the result of a battle of gods. Oh, that's a, that's a very different perspective than what was going on at, at the time. And uh, the relationships with people and deity was covenant and, oh, uh, and it was covenant born out of liberation from oppressive regimes, you know, the pharaohs uh, of Egypt. And then you look at the prophetic prediction is if you get a king, look what's going to happen to you. It's going to be militarism and enslavement and wealth goes to the, and then the prophetic resistance to, you know, well, look at that. That's a, that's a powerful, powerful resistance, creating an alternative picture of the world in which all people are equal. And there is no, uh, now then you get into the New Testament times, you know, Christianity is born saying not that empire. But an empire that's based on different foundations, which are inclusiveness. And so that's, that's all there in, in those texts. And, and what we've had is so much layering of other cultures that we lose. Uh, well, it's, you almost have to come, go around and come in the back door to the right. sacred texts to say, oh, well, that's what it really says, doesn't it? Uh -huh. <laughs> and we've got had years and years of, of again, white European uh, filters uh, looking at that. And so we think it's about us. And, and well, then it's not. In that very context of uh, filters, we're sort of enslaved with filters as we grow up. And we have our narrow foci as we look at the world. 
I mean, we come to college often with that. Uh, <laughs> oh, of course. Of course. I'm wondering both for you personally, and then as you see in the broader picture, how does one change or broaden or get stimulated to examine those filters and see that there is a broader perspective? Well, I, I think there's probably a number of strategies, but I, if I speak from my own personal experience, I think that my parents, even though we were working poor, my folks decided that uh, at least for a couple of weeks every year, we would go someplace else. Hmm. And, and my dad had built a homemade trailer and we would pack the kids and the grandparents and the dog and, and go off and see other places. And I think particularly my mother's emphasis on you need to learn about the world. And so I can remember again saying, oh, well, that's, that's different. That's not my small uh, rural uh, Euro-American <laughs> town. Uh, so when I'm in the midst of a Native American reservation, uh, or I'm, I'm looking at a, a shrine to something that's, that's not my experience, uh, I'm walking through a museum, which is revealing. I mean, now I, I particularly remember uh, that we took a trip across the South uh, when I was an adolescent. And because my grandparents Brown had moved to Florida, my grandfather was an itinerant sharecropper farmer most of his life, but they uh, went to Florida and he worked on a dairy farm. And so we went down to visit them. Well, here we were traveling across the deep South before interstates, before there were uh, camping facilities. <laughs> so here we were on the, the blue highways and, uh, and, and stopping and camping wherever we could, sometimes on a vacant lot or on the side of the road. And here I was experiencing a very, very different culture. Now, I remember the conversation between my mother and her father, my grandfather, about his language. <laughs> and I overheard that. And my mother was saying, no, that we don't use those words. <laughs> we talk about the folks that we're seeing along the way. And so, oh, here was a whoop, an expansion of my of my world. Mm -hmm. uh, just recently, I started looking at the archives of the Nebraska legislature because my grandfather Hopkins served one term in the Nebraska legislature. The last time it was a bicameral legislature, so this was in the late '30s before Nebraska became unicameral. And here was a speech that my grandfather made uh, speaking against a, a bill that would have given the governor the authority to appoint all statewide positions that had been elected. Uh, so like attorney general and secretary of state and those have been all appointed. And in that speech, my grandfather says, well, what are we trying to do? Create uh, fascist Italy? <laughs> and I go, that was my grandfather. That, that, oh my goodness. So here I realized that I probably was being given opening perspectives as a child saying, wait, there's a different way to look at this. There's another story. There's a, there's a world there. Now, I was the first person in my family to go to college and, huh. uh, and work my way, although some of it was dependent upon um, money I'd earned through, a, it was a Kennedy Johnson program called the Neighborhood Youth Corps. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it gave uh, poverty kids an opportunity to work for a federal agency. So I worked for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and then 
and I worked for the Soil Conservation Service. So I earned enough money to, to, I thought, to pay for my first year of college. And so I went. Well, of course, college was just like, open up the world. And again, over time, I think my travels outside the United States, my serious dialogue with persons that are not me. I remember one time traveling with a, a young black man to, we were sort of like token college students to speak before some women's conference. And so I had a, about an hour ride with what I would describe today as a young black radical. And here I was this sort of a white, uh, you know, flaming liberal and, and poof, that was a, that was a tough encounter, but that encounter again, expanded my, uh, I have a friend who uses the term expanding one's appreciable universe. Now that's, that's the kind of thing I think has to happen. Uh, it could be tritely expressed, you know, walk in someone else's shoes, but every opportunity I think we have to say, well, what if I looked at it from that perspective, whether that means just shift cultural perspective or it means scale of perspective, you know, what's the larger scale? Uh, all of those things, I think anything we can do to encourage folks to say, well, what if you looked at it this way? Uh, what if? You know, not saying right or wrong. I'm just saying, what, well, what if you suspended at least for a while? We're perfectly willing to do that when we go to a movie or we read a novel. We suspend our, our judgment and we uh, open ourselves up to imagination. Well, what if we did that in regular, normal, everyday human relationships? <laughs> just suspend our judgment for a moment to say, oh, what it would it be like to think of yourselves uh, from that perspective, again, whether that's scale or whether that's uh, uh, cultural diversity. Well, you know, I try to do that a bit with uh, some of my Facebook friends who are more seemingly to promoting the narrative of the white nationalist, although they don't use that particular language. And I, I run into things like, uh, well, the other day, uh, a friend posted the Nightline uh, show on white supremacy, I think, and 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 they mentioned something called the Turner Diaries. Oh yes, the Turner Diaries. Sure, I'd never heard of those. Oh, oh my goodness! Well, that was the primary guiding document, although it was a story that uh, led to Timothy McVeigh's decision to blow up the Murrah Federal Building, and the, the Turner Diaries are being circulated and still are available today. You can still read them, but that you know, tells the story of a small group of resistors who were going to bring down the U.S. government. And that was a, was a kind of a, a Bible, so to speak. Uh, well, you, you may recall in the 1980s, there was a group on the Missouri-Arkansas border called the Covenant Sword and Arm of the Lord. And they had attempted to uh, bomb the, the Murrah Federal Building before Timothy McVeigh pulled it off. And again, the, the Turner Diaries were at the center of that as a way of saying, hey, here's a story that uh, we, can, we can make happen to, to bring on the race war. Well, so I, I got a bit off of, of your question, but you- No, you no that's perfect. But sure, these, uh, these stories are out there and, and propel and energize. Well, the point is when in our time, right now, which I think are among the more culturally conflicted times that we've experienced, certainly not like, you know, the, the, the Civil War and there are other times too, but my tendency is to want to, uh, as we say, silo, you know, just, just stay with the folks that think it sounded like me, 
because I don't want to have to deal with antagonism. I, I'd, I'd rather be, you know, a loving, peaceful, respected person and not have to deal with antagonism. But again, that's denying the very thing I said about trying to look at the perspective from someplace else. And so I don't, I've been accused of being, you know, self-righteous and, and uh, even recently was uh, accused of a double, double speak. So what drives that person to, to have to defend or even be offensive towards someone like me who's trying to say, you know, can't we find ways to cooperate and covenant and think of ourselves as a, as a diverse community? But boy, that that tendency is I don't want to deal with that. I just want to, I just want to talk with you. You know, you and I. You know, we we think a lot. We're on the same page. So let's let's stay there. Yeah, Another recent uh, event was our Confederate monument uh, in Jeff City, and how that created a public venue of sides. And sure. I got an education on the United Daughters of the Confederacy. I another <laughs> you know area of my education that was uh, left out somehow. Well, if you've uh, take a look at uh, Lewin's book, uh, Lies Across America, he does this study of, uh, of monuments and historic sites across the country and goes back and say, now what's the real story? And how many of these uh, monuments and quote unquote sacred sites were established out of, uh, uh, of agendas that were emerging during Reconstruction or uh, the beginning of the 20th century, or in protest to civil rights developments, and you know, and not based on historical facts at all, mm-hmm. but but based on contemporary narratives that were sort of shoved back into history. That's a touchy one because, well, as uh, as you know, I'm also a storyteller. Stories. Mm-hmm. <laughs> narratives are more powerful than rational, historically documented, universally confirmed things, because we, we live out of our, our narratives far more about emotion and uh, personal identity and security than we do out of uh, documented history. How early were you a storyteller? Well, I one answer I give is I, I always was, but uh, now I don't get so much in trouble as much as get paid for it. It's, uh, <laughs> I, I think, I, well, I grew up in a household in which my grandfather Hopkins, again, couldn't communicate without telling a story. And maybe oh. it was a little antidote or a joke or a personal reference. And, and I kind of grew up with that, assuming that. And then um, in my background and growing up within Protestant Christianity and, uh, uh, and experiencing a positive relationship there, here were the biblical narratives that were important. And then making the choice uh, to go into the ministry, preaching and teaching, and which is really storytelling. Um, then about, well, it's beginning to be about 40 years ago or so, I discovered that there was such a thing as, as professional storytellers. And went to a conference and, and, and met one, heard one, and saw one, and, and came back saying, oh, I could do that. And again, my love of folk traditions uh, and fantasy, as well as um, historical uh, narratives too. I probably in the last few years I've done more short little vignettes of historical events, and I've so appreciated that. I recently assisted the Boone's Lake Road Association in creating a little narrative about what life would have been like in the 1820s on the Boone's Lake Trail, oh. and so I found that you know you can put history 
uh, into narrative form as, 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 as all uh, what uh, historical fiction people discover, you know, but even then the actual stories themselves, if, if crafted in a narrative fashion, uh, recently uh, read the book uh, Lincoln and the World, and these were little vignettes about all of the foreign policy influences on Abraham Lincoln, uh, and little stories about that. And here was a little chapter on uh, Karl Marx, who was a, a newspaper reporter, both serving in France and in England at the time of Lincoln, writing these uh, editorials positively about Abraham Lincoln. And you go, well, where's that story? I never heard that story before, but here it was. And that was, you know, documented history. Here's the, here's what he said and, and so on. And you find, wow, when that story surfaces, that's motivational, mm -hmm. uh, much more than, uh, than here, memorize these dates, um, mm -hmm. line up these, uh, this chronology, uh, but find the human drama that's uh, in the, in the inside of much of the popular writing these days, uh, and again, what we know in terms of movies. And, well, that and similar connection kind of in reverse, uh, we hear the stories of uh, Hitler, or at least people around Hitler, who looked at what was going on in the U.S. and said, oh, this is a good idea. <laughs> we can exterminate this group of people. Sure. Yeah, this, this is kind of strange because here was Hitler and some of his advisors looking at the uh, American Indian reservation system and saying, oh, we can learn from that. Yeah. <laughs> we have people in the United States looking at Hitler's involvement saying, oh, we can use that. So there was a, a kind of a circular influences about how you round up and, and deal with people that uh, you don't like or want to use as scapegoats for for political and economic problems. Yeah, <laughs> well, but again, it's the power of the story. So I've, I've just so appreciated over the years, the challenge and the enjoyment of, of creating a story, telling it, whether it's a fantasy or it's a historical uh, event or, uh, and so on. So I've enjoyed doing storytelling programs, going to storytelling events and, and hearing how, again, cultural perspectives can be uh, put into narrative that, and I particularly like oral storytelling. Yes, there are folks who do digital storytelling and of course, uh, multimedia storytelling, but I so appreciate the the one-on-one, -on -one, the person who's telling in the audience who is there uh, interacting and, and working with them. I saw you tell a, a brief story to Paul Pepper. Oh, once a month. <laughs> oh, once a month, oh. I I've been on, I've done over 100 uh, performances on Radio Friends with Paul Pepper. Oh my goodness. And was on his show on television, although primarily on the Kids Corner before that. So yes, I uh, either tell a story or sing a song or tell a story about a song and do a song. Mm -hmm. uh, and some of those, many of those have been original creations. Some are personal narrative, some are fantasy, but I've done with Paul because he often has me on closely associated with a, with a holiday. So I will craft a story or develop a story based on how, what the nearest holiday is in, in relation to when his show is broadcast. Yeah, I think the one I saw was uh, July 4th and the Liberty Bell. Oh yes, oh, and, and here was a case of having friends in Kansas, in Gossel, Kansas, and actually seeing it. Yes. <laughs> and then coming back from that and going, oh, well, this is a story. Who knows yeah. about that story? <laughs> I got a response back too from the, uh, the Mennonite Museum in Gossel, Kansas, because they had they had actually 
saw the story and said, well, you got one detail wrong. But, you know, they were they were pleased that in, in that small world out here in Missouri, that their national story was uh, was getting told. And, that, and that's fun, too, to find uh, something like that that uh, gives people, uh, again, another perspective, another value. So what is this organization you've started around storytelling? Well, I was one of the first group of, well, I was in a group of people who started what we call the Mid-Missouri Organization of Storytelling, acronym was MOST, uh, and we were trying to encourage storytelling, help people learn to tell stories, get storytellers in schools and libraries and, and community organizations and so on. Well, that organization's had its ebb and flow and does no longer exist. There are a number of story guilds, storytelling guilds, groups of people who who teach, support, and enjoy storytelling. We've got several in Missouri. Now, together, we cooperate in an organization that's called MOTEL, M-O hyphen T-E-L-L. And that uh, has annual conferences and retreats and, again, helps publicize uh, storytellers who who need uh, uh, to be occupied and also the nurturing of younger others who want to learn storytelling and then and support festivals and events and and I was at one time president of that organization no longer uh, in an executive position with that group but I was also a, a board member for a while of the national storytelling network uh, again that's sort of like where individual storytellers storytelling guilds organizations storytelling festivals all work together on a cooperative basis uh, and actually, there's an international storytelling center as wow. well. And there are international storytelling festivals now that by virtue of, of Zoom and so on, you can participate in. So there are lots of, of organizations and networks, some of which I've been a part. Well, I, yeah, like I mentioned, I was on NSN's board for a short time, too. And I'm not a, I'm not a good administrative person, but I, I do enjoy being present with lots of storytellers and hear lots of storytelling. One of the biggest storytelling festivals in the country is at Jonesboro, Tennessee, and uh, mm. I've attended that. And a number of other people from Columbia have been regular attendees at the storytelling festival in Jonesboro. But. So where there might be a, a, a Kerr music festival where you play yes. songs that you've written, well, Jonesboro has storytellers that tell their stories that they've created. Precisely, and there are storytelling festivals, of course, uh, the largest and longest running one in Missouri is the St. Louis Storytelling Festival. Hmm. Uh, and for years, it was uh, in cooperation with UMSL, but now in the last few years is developed cooperative with MU Extension. And that brings in nationally known storytellers and then dozens of local storytellers who are circulated throughout the St. Louis area in schools and libraries and and civic organizations and clubs. And then there's big concerts put on too. Uh, we used to work very closely with the, uh, the ARCH uh, personnel, although that relationship ended and maybe that can be restored. But we, so I've told a number of times uh, in, the, uh, in the museum beneath the ARCH as a part of the St. Louis Festival. Kansas City has a big storytelling celebration uh, annually. Wow. Uh, Jefferson City, a library, sponsors one annually and gets folks like me to basically go out to schools uh, and do storytelling. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and there have been other storytelling festivals that have, have come and gone uh, in the state of Missouri well, but primarily they are bringing together tellers so that they can do public performances and then engage the public in through libraries and schools and, and uh, other venues. And you sort of focused on Christian storytelling at one point. Well, and yes, that's kind of a, that, that was actually a, a branch and I'm still engaged in that. I became a member of the network of biblical storytellers, ah, okay. served on their national board for a while, but did take two trips to India, one of which was just a year ago, oh. in which we were, a group of us were teaching biblical storytelling in seminaries and Christian schools uh, and some other venues as well, and then cooperatively being there with a big storytelling festival that occurs in Chennai in the state of uh, uh, Tamil Nadu. But the, the teaching of biblical storytelling goes back to the, the roots of, of, of Christian material as well as, as, uh, as Hebrew Jewish material was oral. It, it began as oral tradition. Right. And there is now a serious academic study of religious texts saying, well, what would have been different had you heard it, not read it? It was the oral presentation. And what if you heard it in the original language in which it was shared? For example, the Gospel of Mark, undoubtedly told Mm -hmm. in Koine Greek for generations before it really got the form that we know it. And certainly before we know it in its various translations. Uh, via Latin and, and, and German and English and so on to the present. What's different about that story, if it's an oral presentation, we miss the subtleties, we miss the inflections, we, we miss the, the, the punctuation. It, what, what's there in the written may not be. Well, of course, you're not having eye contact and you're not hearing the tonal variations and so on. But imagine how that story would have been told if it was a live, in-person, oral presentation. Uh, how different that would be. And don't you imagine that the writers of those letters were simply writing from stories that they had heard? Oh, precisely. Well, there there are, of course, in some Christian texts and some Hebrew texts, documents that may have been, may have been originally written documents. That's there because like the letters of Paul, for example, or some of the court records that wind up in in some of the chronicles in the uh, in the Hebrew text, but yes, most of them were stories, oral stories first, later uh, to preserve or to pass on, put into written form. And how much editing and shifting and changing occurred at that point when they became written documents? Even the letters that may have been circulated uh, in the New Testament period, you know, you got a letter. And it arrived at a, at a congregation and a group of worshiping folks, and it was read to them. Because remember, 90% of the folk were not literate. Correct. So the person who was literate reads the letter. And so it was written to be read out loud. That kind of, of, of uh, process is there as well. And the, the pacing and the, the, the rhyming and, uh, and the sound patterns Again, we lose that in English, of course, from say the original languages of Hebrew or Greek. We just we lose that. We don't catch the puns. We don't catch the uh, uh, the rhymes. You know, we don't hear the alliteration because it, you can't sort of reconstruct it into into written English form. And how how different that would have been. Well, you, you've seen 
probably that little phrase where it said, uh, the, the words are, let's eat grandma. Now, when you put a comma after let's eat yeah. grandma, when you don't have that comma, uh, let's eat grandma. Oh, wait a minute now, what are you saying? But again, in a oral tradition, you can say, well, let's eat grandma. <laughs> and here's my hands up. You can't see that. And my hands are waving. Oh, come on in, Grandma. Let's eat. Whereas there may be another, let's eat, Grandma. And, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a whole different That's a whole different twist. So, you know, we just miss a lot of that uh, interpretation and subtlety and maybe original characterization. One of my <laughs> favorite uh, jokes is uh, the one with the Pope one night uh, going down into the archives and then reading some old text and and then you hear this scream it says celebrate <laughs> not celebrate <laughs> oh yeah well one of my one of my favorites and it's totally inappropriate is uh, in one english translation from a number of years ago psalm 50 verse 9 a says i will accept no bull from your house Oh, in context, nor will yeah. I accept the goat as a sacrifice, you know, oh, yeah. forward, but you know, you can take that phrase, take it out of context, put emphasis on it and it's saying in something entirely different, which of course is the history of Christian theology is getting yeah. the right context, the right interpretation yeah. and the commas in the right place. <laughs> I'm thinking to challenge you a bit here. Sure. If you in the not too distant future were to attempt to craft a story about what <coughs> went on this week hmm. in Washington, D.C., etc. What would you say? Well, <laughs> let's say I'm still processing that because mm -hmm. I, I, I have I have it sort of a of a gut reaction to that. And again, back up, put it in context. Mm -hmm. And also I have some bias because of my understanding of who some of these persons and groups were that did that. I have my own political perspectives on, on what inciting was about, but knowing that there was planning and preparation and, and this thing was in the works for, for a long time. Mm -hmm. And then put it alongside of other protests, other engagement. I mean, I, I personally have been a part of hundreds of protests, demonstrations, commemorations. I've sung, I've spoken, I've, I've, I've walked, I've uh, knelt in prayer, I've, you know, all kinds of things in DC and Jefferson City and other places, so sacred sites around the world. And put that event in the context of what protesting is about. And so to shape that story, I would have to spend a whole lot of time saying, okay, what's the context that is uh, is most helpful to tell that story. To simply use, you know, uh, a riot was incited. Well, now that that's that's not correct. But then on the other side, the symbols of 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 uh, American democracy under attack is a bit different than folks on the street who are crying out for recognition and help. And the, my life matters. And, and uh, again. The framing of that story has to account for the the context that is as as accurate as you could be historically, but but allowing for multiple perspectives. So it would be hard for me to just say, 
well, I think down tomorrow I'll sit down and create a story. <laughs> it's one of those things I think would have to uh, to gel for mm -hmm. a while. Well, in the, in the process of creating a story for me, often I have an insight and it takes a while for that to take narrative form. Mm -hmm. And then for me, oftentimes I have to tell that narrative to an audience over a period of time, sometimes months, sometimes years before that story finally mm -hmm. sets. Mm -hmm. uh, you hear me do sometimes on Radio Friends with Paul Pepper stories that are pretty much just in the raw. Oh, I just came up with that one this week. You know, ah. it's out there. But now let that story seep and set and how much time is needed. So, you know, I could tell a story, you know, this afternoon about what happened in D.C., but that would not be fair mm -hmm. uh, to the events nor mm -hmm. to perspectives that need to be cherished and valued. So. Um, yeah. but that's yeah. a great challenge. That's a great challenge. And I, I will take that seriously. And at some point, well, each of us are telling our stories right now about what happened. True. Yeah. So for, for me to, to take the time now and, and think it through and, and what could be said uh, in, a, in a helpful way. One um, thing that you just said a minute ago uh, reminded me of the evolution of Martin Luther King's story. Oh, oh, yeah. About um, protest. And the he, he came to that view that violence sometimes breaks out because of the oppression that people feel. Sure, sure. And, and one could say, although I would have to temper it with a lot more context, that we saw expressions of, of desperate people. You know, they were feeling from their perspective, some level of oppression, but when it was been uh, aided by uh, narratives that were manipulative narratives, that's a, that's a different phenomenon when someone is using your desperation as emotional uh, uh, equipment for your agenda. Um, I mean, that's, I mean, we do use phrases like propaganda we've used that throughout history and mm -hmm. but creating narratives that uh, are not they're, they're taking advantage of the people who may have desperation and mm -hmm. create a narrative and then you send them down a pathway that's ultimately self-destructive mm. yeah uh, we haven't talked at all about your songwriting and oh. uh, i wondered yeah. uh is there a is it mostly freedom songs? I don't know. I've heard you sing one song, and that's about it. <laughs> well, well, <clears throat> I was actually a part of the uh, what sometimes folks sort of say jokingly, the great folk revival of the 1960s. You know, <laughs> and you know, I, I learned to play the guitar in 1962, and and here I was captured by. Uh, Bob Dylan and Joan Baez and Peter Paul and Mary and so my my singing came out of this sort of modern urban folk music uh, revival thing and then it became very much associated with uh, political expressions but that's not been the, my music has not been limited to that now um, in fact if I look to my right here I have a bunch of uh, three ring binders <laughs> filled with music that I have enjoyed and appreciated from a variety of, uh, of, of performers and, and authors. My own music, I've written a couple of hundred, you know, songs. Some of them are parodies. Uh, a number of them are political parodies, 
but there's also romantic uh, songs as well. And, and there's songs that uh, talk about uh, family values, uh, some of those. And there are a number of, again, specifically uh, religious uh, oriented spiritual songs I've written to over the years. Um, sometimes I've, I've done the lyrics and found a tune or sometimes it's been both uh, yeah. and, and, uh, and music I've put together. Uh, I, I used to do a lot of musical performances, but over the years, the storytelling has, has kind of increased as the music performance has decreased. Mm -hmm. uh, a few years ago, I would say some people would invite me over to do a, a music concert and I would throw in a story. And nowadays I invited to do a storytelling concert and I may throw in a song. Yeah. Uh, and some folks only know me as a, as a storyteller, not a musician. Some know me fully as, as both. And uh, I would say I probably don't work on the music now nearly uh, with the intensity and, and creativity that I have on storytelling in the last uh, couple of decades. Well, it's been a great pleasure getting to know you uh, much more broadly than I ever uh, thought I would. <laughs> well, good. Well, your, your, uh, your conversation today is, is just very helpful to me personally, and I, and I think to our audience as well. And, uh, well, I hope so. It's, it's been now a number of years since I've been on KOPN. Uh, I used to be a regular on some shows years ago, <laughs> and sometimes doing songs and stories. Yeah. And, uh, in a bit of a while so well i'm going to encourage my friends to have you uh, have you back more <laughs> it's great uh, all right i didn't mention your name too much through the show uh larry brown uh there's a number of larry browns out there on the internet but uh you're... there's a lot of us if you do uh, on the internet look for larry brown storyteller that narrows it down a little bit now if you go toward reverend larry brown you're going to and of course, you stay out of uh, sports. You don't want to go there. But Larry <laughs> <laughs> Brown storyteller will tend to bring up. Uh, well, probably you'll find the radio friends of Paul Pepper more than than any other. Uh, oh, good. Well, it, it's a great resource. Yeah. Well, thank you, Larry, so much. Well, thank you. Thank you, Dick. And friends, uh, remember wherever you are, that is your world. Now, please leave your world cleaner more peaceful and more loving than you found it, because if it is to be, it is up to us. Take care. Talk to you soon.